Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only and does not replace your own financial, tax, legal, or financial product advice. Hello world, John Pigeon here, My Millennial Property. Thank you for tuning in. Today, an exciting session. Uh, I have the pleasure of speaking to Eliza Owen, Head of Research at CoreLogic Australia. I'll introduce Eliza in a second, but I want to talk about, well, the, the markets that are current around Australia, and we've got a media release that is hot off the press this morning, so I want to share that with you and the, and the ins and outs of that, talking about how Australia's property market does or does not relate to the rest of the world, uh, what unemployment rates look like, what supply and demand looks like, the, the rental uh, crisis facing Australia. And I know Emily and I have spoken about it in previous episodes, but wanted to get Eliza on. She's got a wealth of knowledge. So I'm keen to see what she has to say about that today. So without further ado, let's get into it. Eliza, welcome to the show. G'day, John. Thanks for having me. So first of all, uh, most people, if they've been listening to property stuff and if they're a property sort of geek, uh, they would have heard of CoreLogic or RP Data. So I'll first of all explain what RP Data is and then, Eliza, maybe go into to your role. Uh, CoreLogic Asia Pacific is leading independent provider of property data and analytics helping build better lives by providing rich, up-to-the-minute property insights that inform the very best property decisions. Uh, An extensive breadth of and depth of knowledge gathered over the last 30 years, providing service across a wide range of industries, including banking and finance, real estate, government, insurance and construction. Uh, Solutions help clients identify and manage growth opportunities, improve performance and mitigate risks. Uh, We also operate consumer-facing portals on thehouse.com.au and propertyvalue.com.au. So uh, a lot of people might not realise that, but uh, they're they're free portals that people can access or talk to a little bit about that as well. But uh, all in all, basically, it's the one-stop shop for property data. As buyers agents, we use it extensively. Uh, And I think... And correct me if I'm wrong, Eliza, a lot of the information is probably out there. It's it's just really good to, to just be able to go to one spot to get all the data and have it in a succinct manner that we can uh, capture and then use for our benefit and, and, and indeed our clients' benefit. Yeah, absolutely. And and I know even from, you know, I'm in that kind of first home buyer process at the moment, even being able to use the RP platform to get information about historic sales, um, estimated values, uh, attributes of properties and, and recently sold and all that kind of thing. It's, I, I feel like from that perspective, I'm really getting use out of the tools now as well. <laughs> and, and it can be so different to when you're looking at some of those broader market trends to get that really granular information uh, in in the market that you're looking at it it's um, really been invaluable through my um, home buying journey as well. 
Yeah, great to hear. And, and I think there's so much data out there. Like, and I and often talk about it on the show, like 25 years ago when I first started investing, there was no data. Like, we're just relying on property magazines that come into the news agency. And, <laughs> and now there's almost too much out there. So it, it can be uh, quite intimidating. And, and uh, a lot of people that talk to us suffer from analysis paralysis. It's like, where do I start? Where do I stop? Yeah, I, I guess that's where the recency of the data becomes so important as well. Um, one of the big challenges I've found at the moment is the fact that there's there's not a ton of uh, listings coming onto the market, especially to what we would have seen the last spring selling season. And because of the extremities in the interest rates, um, the, I find that the dynamic of the market is is moving fairly quickly. So being able to combine um, as recent sales and listings as you can with high frequency metrics like the weekly clearance rates, for example, I think is helping to empower some of that decision making a little bit as well. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it's exciting on a personal level for you that you're in the market trying to buy now because uh, we often speak to like real estate agents, for example, that uh, just go about the business selling houses um, with not a lot of time or energy put into building their own portfolio. So do, do you want to explain sort of, uh, not in numbers, but um, how, how you came to sort of starting on the investing journey? Well, to be honest, for me, it's not so much about the investment journey. It's, I mean, it. I guess every property purchase is an investment to some extent. But as as you'll know, and, and as we'll probably talk about as well, um, for me, it's the rental market that has really been the trigger for this mm. decision point uh, with a lease renewal coming up. Um, and and a little bit of savings under my belt through COVID and, and not going out as much. <laughs> yes. Um, uh, I think it was uh, that combination of factors that really led to me getting started on that journey. It's very hard, you know, being in Sydney. It's still a very um, prohibitive market in in some sense with uh, affordability. But um, it, it's been interesting to. Uh, go on that journey, look at some of the properties that are available. And there are properties that I have researched that I don't think are going to work for me to live in, but I still see the opportunity there. Uh, A lot of the renovation potential as people start to move on from their homes, um, some of the bridesmaid suburbs of the popular markets like the eastern suburbs and the inner west um, that, that you see more, I guess, young first home buyers Uh, like myself kind of looking through now as well. So yeah, it's been super, super interesting time. And um, it's just brought a whole new level of understanding to some of the data and, and platforms as well. Yeah, makes it more relevant for you personally um, as opposed to just commentating on it. You're yeah. now in the trenches yourself. But you're right, like it's just it's flipped on its head, hasn't it, with interest rates rising and, and rents uh, increasing. It's, it's uh, a nightmare to, to rent at the minute. So it's driving people to, I, I suppose, look at home ownership maybe sooner rather than later. But 
Uh, the problem with that is the cost of living increasing to the point where we, it's very hard to save that deposit. So that, that probably leads us to the budget. And we, mm. we did have a previous episode on that and, and just what the, the government planned to do over the next sort of uh, few years to uh, alleviate that because it, it really is a crisis out there for, for home ownership and, and affordable housing, isn't it? Yeah, we've definitely seen a decline in the portion of housing stock over time that is dedicated social and affordable housing. Um, It's just not been delivered at the same rate as the overall stock of housing. Um, For example, I've been doing some research on the Queensland market at the moment, and uh, between the 2016 and 2021 census periods, um, your your housing stock overall is estimated to have increased um, by about 10%, whereas the social housing stock has only increased 1%. So I think that this budget at least does have an emphasis on trying to not just create supply, but dedicating at least a, a small portion of that, about 5% of that at the moment, seems to be specifically dedicated to uh, social and affordable housing which would be um, capping the rent on the on this housing um, at a certain percentage of, of market rent, uh, depending on your income. You know, that that's a real positive step. Uh, and I think the other main theme within this budget was about, it, it wasn't necessarily a deflationary budget in the sense that there's still a budget deficit, the government is still spending and there there is still... Um, elements of spending that need to become more efficient. Uh, and I think the NDIS was called out um, as a program that that had really high running costs as an example. But I, I would say that the budget was restrained enough in its overall spending that it's not one that's going to stoke inflation further or, or add to inflationary pressures in that sense. But the trade-off for that, of course, is that you don't get as much um, household support because as the government's trying to restrain spending, they're not giving as much in in terms of cost of living relief. So that's had a really interesting implication for consumer sentiment. Um, The Westpac Melbourne Institute consumer sentiment reading came out at near record lows um, and and certainly the lowest that we've seen consumer sentiment since the onset of the pandemic. Um, And a big part of that was people not feeling that the budget was sort of doing enough to help them with rising inflation, which ironically, you know, the the fact that it was a restrained budget means that um, it it probably won't add uh, unnecessarily to inflation. Yeah, it's, it's interesting times with the inflation rate and it still doesn't look, we're in November now and, and it doesn't feel as though it's, it's, it's slowing but it's not, mm. the, there's no handbrake on it right yet um, even though interest rates have, have doubled and in some cases higher than doubled in the last sort of 12 months depending on who you're with and what you had to begin with. But um, do, do you see that starting to, to change in the next few months? Yeah, John, I think it's just like you said. Um, one of the hard things about inflation is that prices don't need to fall for inflation to fall. Mm. Um, it's it's the rate of the change in the price of goods and services that we're keeping an eye on. And I think, like you say, it's very early days in terms of some of the turning points. Um, so rents, for example, that's something that we've started to see come off a little bit 
um, in the sense that the growth in the rental market slowed from about 1% a month on average through the September quarter um, to about 0.6% over the past few months. Um, That's mainly coming from the detached house segment where the rate of growth has slowed down in house rents, unit rents continue to see momentum driven by the fact that an already tight rental market in Sydney and Melbourne is now seeing the return of overseas migration. And that's where you've got unit rents across Sydney and Melbourne still sitting, you know, 12, 13% higher over the past year. Um, So that's one forward indicator of um, CPI measures, which, you know, across the capital cities might start to see a a little bit of abating. Um, There's things like the construction space, which has been under a lot of pressure because of um, COVID restrictions on the labour market, people physically not being able to get onto building sites, the high cost of materials that are inputted into buildings. Those things are starting to come off a little bit as well. And so between the new build space and the rent space, which are both components that are measured in inflation, that might start to ease a little. Um, And we've also seen very, very early signs of things slightly unwinding in the labour market. But even then, that's just from the sense that the rate of growth in employment has, has slowed a little over the past couple of months. Yeah. And, and, and on that unemployment, like it's extremely low still, isn't it? And I, it's coincidentally last night found myself looking at um, the, the GFC in, in America on uh, online and, and obviously that was starting to build from 2006, I believe, uh, onwards to, to 2011. But unemployment was 9% uh, in the US uh, at around when the GFC hit. Um, we've got three and a half percent unemployment as of uh, I think it was September last recorded um which uh we the last time we were at nine percent was 1994 so it's a, it's an amazing um difference uh, which which underpins I suppose the the next part about this whole supply demand and and a lot of the GFC in my view was due to well people losing their jobs they've got to sell their house sort of thing we're not seeing that in Australia um, and I mean Greece and Spain are a different conversation they're at like 15 percent right now um so they're in an absolute world of hurt so I think we can be over consumed by what the media is saying out there with all doom and gloom and actually look at the the real data. That's a really good point. And that's a key feature of this housing market downturn, which does give us a little bit of uh, reassurance that this is not kind of an unraveling of Australia's financial system or (laughs) housing system. It's not bricks and slaughter, as they say. (laughs) It's... um, So the budget forecasts a peak unemployment rate of around 4.5%, which is still very tight and below our pre-COVID decade average unemployment rate, which is 5.5%. When you have price falls, as long as your mortgage serviceability remains intact, it's not necessarily a problem because, as you alluded to, people don't have to sell. Um, if they can still service their mortgage, even though their property price might be falling. Now, property prices are still about 20% higher than at the onset of COVID, despite a recent peak to trough decline of 6%. And even in that sharp peak to trough decline, the 
only buyers who are going to be really affected by that is the more recent home buyer cohort. And rather than selling within a few months, we know on average Australians hold their dwellings for about nine years. I think this is reinforced by the fact that over the past few weeks, we've seen about 38,000 new listings pop up, advertised for sale across Australia. That's about 20 percent lower than where we, you would usually see listings volumes. So it, it does make it tough for first home buyers because it means that, you know, even if you've waited for a dip, even if it is a bit more of a buyer's market in terms of the time you have to negotiate, the fact that vendors will come to the table a little more on prices, at the end of the day, we're in an environment where there's just not as much for sale. Mm. So that presents a bit of a challenge, but in a way, it's kind of a good thing because it reinforces the stability of the housing market. Yeah. And, and I was always told as, a, as an investor that the Australian government doesn't let residential property fail because it's such a large component of, of the economy. And, uh, and, and that's probably coupled with the fact that the, the supply issue in Australia right now is is extremely evident, isn't it? But um, yeah, seeing, and I think I read somewhere in, in some of your data that listings are down 26%. So it's like, okay, well, that's that's great. There's less buyers out there wanting to buy. There's less houses for sale. So maybe we haven't seen the full extent of, uh, of, of this downturn yet, or the downturn doesn't actually play out to the level that people are thinking. Well, I think that's the key thing that we're grappling with at the moment because that tight restriction of supply that you're talking about is something that could indeed insulate the housing market downturn. That idea has been reinforced by the fact that every month since August, so um, August, September, October, we've seen a slowdown in the pace of decline from 1.6% to 1.4% to 1.2% over October. And that slowdown in the pace of decline has been most evident in the housing markets of Sydney and Melbourne, particularly the high end. So in other words, the markets that saw the most sensitivity to rate changes and the kind of sharpest response are now showing the fastest signs of a bit of a deceleration in that growth rate. Um, hopefully that's the right way to put it, if that makes sense. Yep. Um but the, the biggest kind of slowdown in price falls is occurring um, at those high-end markets, which are traditionally your leading uh, kind of markets. Now, whether it's too early to make that call that we're sort of at the bottom or, 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 or something like that, I think, you know, we, we are going to have to wait and see because, as you say, the inflationary picture is a bit more sticky. It's, it's a bit more uncertain. There probably will be a few more rate rises to come. Uh, and with that, we get a risk of a re-acceleration of the downturn. Um, but at the moment, things are looking, you know, I'm cautiously optimistic. Awesome. I love your optimism, Eliza. We're, we're going to take a break. And then when we come back, we're actually going to talk about a media release that uh, you guys put out uh, literally this morning. So it's hot off the press. We're going to chat about that. Uh, and we'll talk about more the regional markets uh, over and above the, the capital cities. If you're after personal financial advice, 
don't get it from a podcast. If you would like help based on your own personal situation, head over to sortyourmoneyout.com. Click get help and we'd be happy to introduce you to one of our trusted advisors. We also have a panel of trusted mortgage brokers we can connect you with to get you into your first home, an investment property purchase, or to review your current loan if you don't have a broker. Our panel of advisors, mortgage brokers, and accountants work with clients all over Australia so they can connect with you wherever you are. That's sortyourmoneyout.com and click get help. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Okay, so 6.30 this morning when I opened my laptop up, Eliza, I got a media release from CoreLogic. Uh, with the heading, Heat Leaves Regional Hotspots as Popular Markets Outpace Wider Downturn. And no disrespect to this article, um, but when I look at headlines, I'm always interested to see what sort of meat is in the in the body of the data as opposed to just looking at the headline and then flicking to the, to the next site. Um, so it really talks about, and you mentioned it before the break, Eliza, how the markets have had amazing growth in the last couple of years pre-COVID and now they're starting to come off a little bit. Um, but the stability of the housing market and the supply demand issue is still strong, meaning that these markets, whilst they've come off, are still at record highs. Uh, well, yeah, so I guess there's a lot of um, variation within the markets. Um, so this this regional report that we're looking at is analysing house and unit markets of, of regional Australia. And, and what that's basically showing is that the majority of those markets are showing price falls in the three months to October. Um, as you mentioned, though, this is off the back of a very large upswing. So even though the vast majority are down in the three months to October, um, the, the vast majority of these regions are still higher than where they were 12 months ago. Mm. Um, similarly to what we see in the capital city markets, you get a lot of uh, volatility at the higher end. So where price points are more expensive, um, which incidentally is where we've seen some of the most popularity through the COVID period, uh, like Richmond Tweed, the Southern Highlands and Shoalhaven and the Sunshine Coast, these areas are showing um, declines that are sort of closer to that 10% mark over the quarter. And, you know, we would have seen these regions up around 40% or more uh, through the COVID period. Uh, and then when you've got your more rural regional areas, these are your slow, steady performers. So they may not have had a, as much of an upswing, 
But as we enter the sort of tighter interest rate environment, um, as we see some confidence come out of the market through this point in the cycle, uh, the, the values are, are showing milder declines. Yeah, it's really interesting. And you mentioned those those particular markets, and and we'll put this actual article in the in the show notes for everyone to look at. But um, it mentions, as you said, Richmond Tweed down eleven point seven, Southern Highland Shoalhaven seven point one, Sunny Coast seven point one, Gold Coast six point four, Illawarra six point one, Newcastle Lake Macquarie six percent. So they're they're the largest declines, I suppose, but they're mm. they're also the larger areas, aren't they, for regionals? So it's it's interesting how because I look at all those locations and like most people in Australia would live there if they could afford it. Well, I shouldn't say most, but a, a lot, they're really attractive areas to live uh, around the country. And mm-hmm. with international migration picking up, the lack of supply uh, coming through, um. It's it's just evident that they were slightly overpriced to begin with for to in order to have these declines. Well, some of these, like I say, they increased um, upwards of forty percent over the upswing period from yep. late twenty twenty to early twenty twenty two. So that's off the back of an absolute extremity in in, in the um, cash rate of 0.1%. Mm. Um, now that we're at 2.85%, you'd have to expect that there's going to be some correction in that, and, and that is what's going on. But I think that as we move through the course of the cycle, we'll find that these areas will retain at least some of the value that was experienced through the upswing because, uh, like you say, they're popular areas. Some of the boost in value was actually structural and it was the result of people, you know, whether COVID uh, triggered an early retirement um, or remote work trends have empowered some knowledge workers that may have encouraged them to to buy in some of these regional centres as well. Yeah, how do you think the the whole COVID settling down piece and, and a lot of people getting out of the city to, to find a bit of uh, bit of lifestyle. Um, how do you think that's now had an effect? Like uh, do you see people moving back into the city as a result of um, normality or, or, or more normal than it was, say, 12 months ago? Yeah, so the data isn't really there at a high enough frequency to say. I've heard a couple of anecdotes, but then I've seen anecdotes going the other way as well of people, you know, only just starting their property search in the Southern Highlands from Sydney. So I I think um, the push and pull factors have definitely changed as we've moved past lockdowns. More people from regional Australia can come to the city for university or to start careers, which they couldn't do through COVID. And that's part of why we saw the net regional migration position so high. Um, there is a index that Commonwealth Bank have started producing with the Regional Australia Institute. So if you give that a Google, they're putting that out on a quarterly basis. And to the June 2022 quarter, they showed that that net migration from capital cities to regions has slowed a little from the high during COVID, but it's still higher than pre-COVID migration trends. So Basically, there does seem to be a bit of a residual popularity in regional Australia. Uh, It's just that we can't expect sellers to get the same prices amid much higher interest rates. Yeah, interesting. And and just looking at this... um 
uh, table or, or regional council table, as they call it, data to October 2022. So it's it's pretty uh, pretty up to date. Byron Bay, and and that's been on people's lips for for the last five years. It's like uh, everyone's moving to Byron Bay, and it's the coolest place in the world to live, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Has a median value of one point five six three million. That is so. That's the 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 home value index is down fifteen percent um, on that figure. So that's that's had amazing growth, hasn't it? And when you look at the actual population of that area, it's actually not that large. Yeah, and and it is really that lifestyle appeal as well. The fact that I guess that that liberation of remote work trends or. Um, you know, you know the fact that that it's become more normalised for knowledge workers to live outside of cities uh, is something that has probably unleashed a lot of that value, despite the change in dynamic that's being uh, influenced by interest rates at the moment. Mm, interesting. So I suppose for for listeners, if you've those areas that we've mentioned, if you've bought in those areas in the last couple of years, it's not all doom and gloom. There's there's a slight readjustment. They're good solid locations, in my view. They're locations that will continue to perform for you long after this uh, this downturn has um, has completed. It, it's just a case of knowing your numbers, understanding your cash flow situation, like we always say, and then seeing your way through this period uh, because the values, whilst we can look at this data and say Shoalhaven's down 6% or whatever it might be, um, it's paper value only. And unless you need to sell, then we ride the waves and see our way through it. And that's that whole property investing journey or, or any investing journey is there's, there's highs and lows, but, but understanding the property cycles and that this is just the cyclical nature of real estate. I've seen probably four downturns in my investing journey. And whilst we we don't enjoy it, we understand that we get our way through it through good solid foundations in our life, which uh, which which is basically understanding cash flow, understanding emergency buffers, understanding our yields when it comes to investing and understanding our lifestyle creep. Uh, I mean, Eliza, through this COVID period, how much time and money did people save because they weren't forced to go anywhere or they couldn't go anywhere? It's uh, it's mm. now just maybe we've got to give some of that back for the next 12 months or two years. Yeah, that's a good point. And I think in the same way that every other economic metric has fluctuated wildly through the COVID period, we've seen the same with household savings rates peaking at around 20% um, of of household income off the back of uh, a decade average of about 8%. Um, That's settling right down now again um, because of the inflationary pressures. But yeah, it certainly speaks to, you know, probably a lot of where the increase in housing demand came from through the upswing period as well and and has triggered a lot more first home buyer decisions with some people finding that they would have had a deposit there too. Mm, interesting stuff. Um, so tell me, where to from here? Like, I've got my thoughts on the markets. I think they'll, uh, the interest rates, as you mentioned, uh, another one or two or three increases over the next six months. It'll start to stabilise. Property prices will be will be sort of doing the same. We're seeing in those, I suppose, sub-regional markets where you can buy in at 
four, five, six hundred K, they're not really taking any sort of effect. Um, I see the markets will start to to resume their their normal increases after that period. What what are you what are you seeing out there? What's your internal forecast? I guess um, I was maybe a little more confident about the trajectory uh, before the September inflation data came out. Um, just because, as I mentioned, we we have seen an ongoing stabilising of, of the rate of decline. It's worth noting, though, that the big four banks did revise their terminal cash rate forecasts soon after that inflation data was released. So the median of forecasts went from a peak in the cash rate of 3.2% to about 3.7%, which indicates a little more um, in the way of rate rises, which is going to put a little more pinch on housing demand. But, you know, it, as you mentioned, this is part of a cycle. Um, that peak is expected somewhere early to mid-2023 before we could start to see a flatlining or even a reduction down the line of the cash rate. Longer term, of course, there are other factors that are going to be influencing the housing market, like population growth. And we have seen overseas migration come back with a bang in the short term. That's what's putting a lot of upward pressure on the rental markets of Sydney and Melbourne. And as that overseas migration normalizes, that will eventually flow through into purchasing demand as well as people stay in Australia for a longer period of time. Um, because of the current rate environment, you have a very quick response in the dwelling approvals space, where we've seen unit approvals in particular trending below the decade average for a while now. And that could actually lead to a bit of an undersupply in unit stock over the next few years. Um, that's what uh, I believe it was in the AFR the other day, JLL was sort of supporting this idea too, um, that Brisbane was at, at particular risk of unit undersupply. And when you think longer term, you know, the Olympics and, and all that kind of thing, you can start to see where taking that longer term view of the supply demand dynamics suggests that there are certainly still growth opportunities out there. Um, yeah. And depending on which side of the market, rental, rental or, or prospective buyer or what have you, it can be good or bad news, um, but I, I think those are some of the interesting pieces that we're sort of looking at at the moment. Yeah, you're right. It does depend on which side of the fence you're on. And if you're a retiree in the last three or four years, you've uh, you haven't got a dime on your uh, on your term deposit, so that's starting to pick up again now. Uh, but what what hypothetically, Eliza, if you were you were in government, you're a smart lady. What would you do to boost uh, home ownership or, or, or uh, I suppose, uh, curb this rental crisis that we've got? Well, I think a big part of the rental crisis is acknowledging that the, the people who are at the really vulnerable end are the same people who might never own housing. Um, I think part of the problem with housing policy over the past few years is that we have this assumption that everyone's going to follow that path from the private rental market to a mortgagee to an outright owner, which is going to secure you of housing costs in, in retirement. And the fact is not everyone gets there. Um, even during the low deposit home loan guarantees, which were introduced, which 
you know, do look to have boosted home ownership and really help some people onto the ladder that might not have otherwise gotten there. Um, you had stats like the fact that 30% of low-income renting households didn't have 500 bucks saved for an emergency, let yeah. alone 5% for a deposit, right? So I think those are the people we need to address most urgently. And that yeah. comes exactly from what the government is looking to do now, which is just to build, build, build. Um, there is more that they could be doing in the short term. They should be um, adjusting the Commonwealth rental assistance for low-income households temporarily. They should be, um, I guess, looking more into emergency services and well, as well for people who, and there are many people who are at risk of that insecure housing and homelessness. Um you know, supply is always going to be inelastic. It's good that the government has targets and initiatives and they want to cooperate with the private sector, but we need a more elastic, um, immediate response for um, for some people who are kind of on the brink of insecure housing at the moment. Yeah, that's a really good point and, and something that probably not a lot of people discuss is the fact that not everyone is going to be a homeowner. Um, and the I'm just looking at some data here from Australian Institute of Health and Welfare um, on, their, on their site. It was updated in August. There are basically 9.8 million households in Australia and 67% of them were homeowners, so 6.2 million. So the other 2.9 million were basically renters. So that's a, that's a large proportion, isn't it? Yeah, and look, some of their reporting from the Productivity Commission shows that most of the people who exit rental leases are doing so on a vo voluntary basis. There are people who are um, choosing to rent or, you know, renting works best for them at the time uh, because it provides a flexibility, it's it's more affordable and, you know, hopefully they can find other ways to build up their retirement income as well. But it really is for those that are in an involuntary situation. And, and you know, this is something that we probably saw a bit more of during the last, um, during the recent boom, um, the spring selling season of last year, um, we observed a lot of investment listings coming on the market in particular because the way our rental market works at the moment is that we do have a lot of individual investors who create these rental properties, which is great, but they often sell in response to capital growth, which, you know, obviously they're well in their rights to do that. It just means that it does leave our rental market subject to a bit of volatility because that will disrupt the rental market once you've got those properties going up for sale. Um, and that's where you're also starting to see a bit more of talk about build to rent and, and things from the federal government where I think they're reviewing the composition of our rental housing in, in response to the year that we've had. Absolutely. Yeah. No, it de definitely needs to be continually looked at and addressed because it, it's more the affordability issue for, for people trying to find a place to live that, that is the issue and, and the lack of pure numbers of housing, which is pushing the rents up. But uh, yeah, that is awesome stuff. So just uh, quickly in finishing, Eliza, talk to us about uh, where you guys extract your data from um, high level and, and also on the house and property value uh, websites and, and how they assist um, the, the general person out there looking for property? Yeah, absolutely. So we invest tens of millions of dollars 
sure every you do. year <laughs> data acquisition, um, you know, um, data cleaning and processing and storing. Um, and really, we're, we're using many, many different sources. We collect the vast majority of sales results before settlement. So, um, through our sort of partnerships with the real estate industry um, and and other sorts of sources as well. Uh, and ultimately, the value of general as well becomes um, a, a big source of that information. So, this is feeding through to our platforms, which uh, is, is sort of helping to empower a lot of that decision making and give you all the data at, uh, uh, at your fingertips, whether it's through on the house or um, RP data, property hub, um, so yeah, get onto it. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And and as we said before, that there is a a myriad of information out there. It's just knowing where to find it and and knowing what's hopefully accurate and what's uh, what's maybe not. But mm. um, I suppose having the comfort that somewhere like on the house is coming from RP data um, doesn't downplay the. Uh, I suppose the accuracy or the quality of having an RP data or CoreLogic subscription, but it just allows the the end user to to access some of it for uh, for for basically no price. Mm. Awesome stuff. Um, any finishing words of wisdom for everyone out there today, Eliza? Yeah, uh, I I guess just keeping the current downswing in a greater context. Um, the fact that we've really been through absolute extremes and, and you know, things I've certainly never seen in my time analysing the property market, keeping in mind that we are gradually getting to a state of uh, normality, whatever that is, you know, but coming out of the lockdown periods, the normalisation of monetary policy, I think we can look forward to um, movements in the housing market longer term that are a little bit less volatile than what we've seen in the past few years. And hopefully that empowers people's planning, investment decisions, things like that. So, mm. yeah, just sort of, uh, I guess, looking to better times ahead and wishing everyone the best of luck with their property journey. Absolutely. Yeah. And no, sentiment, those thoughts, I think, uh, yeah, if you if you woke up in 2019 and bought a house, uh, you've, you're sitting there well in front today, mm. generally across the country. Uh, it, it has been unprecedented, not only the, the pandemic, but property price growth in that short period of time. It's, it's allowed a lot of investors to be able to, or homeowners to pull equity out and, and potentially buy their second or even third property uh, outstandingly. But yeah, I agree. I think normalized growth around the country is anywhere from sort of five to 7% per annum, isn't it? So so it'll uh, come back to those sort of numbers once, uh, once we hit this new norm. Eliza Owen, uh, pleasure to have you on the show today. Thank you very much. It's been a great conversation. I've really enjoyed it. Um, for, for those economists or wannabe economists or, or people out there that just love their property data, I think there's, there's uh, so much information that we can get wrap our heads around here. As I mentioned, that uh, a lot of the article we extracted information from today will be in the show notes so check that out and um, check out as i said on the house.com.au and propertyvalue.com.au as well as core logic um, itself but uh, for now thank you for tuning in and we'll talk to you soon
We acknowledge the Awabakal people, traditional custodians of the land on which our studio sits, and pay respects to their elders past, present and emerging. We extend that respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples who may listen to our podcast. Taking your property journey to the next level starts with education. That's why we make this podcast, but we've also created online courses to equip you with the knowledge you need to take the next steps. I've created the Solvair Online Academy, open to both first home buyers and seasoned investors, where I share my tips and experience from 20 years in the property space. And if you're a first home buyer, I have the course just for you. Everything from pre-approval all the way through into your settlement and everything in between. How to place an offer, how to bid at auction, what to even look for at an open home and what questions to ask the agents. It's all covered in my online course. Follow the links in the show notes to sign up and get started today. This podcast is for education and entertainment purposes. Any advice is general financial advice only, which does not take into account your objectives, financial situation, or needs. Because of that, you should consider if the advice is appropriate to you and your needs before acting on the information. If you do choose to buy a financial product, read the product disclosure statement, target market determination, and obtain appropriate financial advice tailored to your needs. Simo Interactive Proprietary Limited, the publisher of the podcast, and Glenn James are authorized representatives of Money Sherpa Proprietary Limited, which holds financial services license 451289. Small details are big surfaces, tight corners are odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rustolium. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 